0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Well, look who we've got. We've got Jeff in the middle, we've got Karen on the left and me on the right. You're watching Squawk Box. It's Friday. These are your headlines. Records tumbling stateside, the S&P 500 hits a new high amid signs of improved employment figures. The Dow also soars, gaining 300 points, and the uh, tech stocks drive the Nasdaq to new levels. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen hails Wall Street's resilience amid the Reddit rally and vows to protect market integrity and investors after meeting with top regulators.
2: Johnson and Johnson single dose COVID-19 vaccine is one step closer to being rolled out in the United States after the pharma giant applied for FDA emergency use authorization with as many as 100 million doses potentially available by June Ford and Stellantis slash production over global chip shortage fears Ford warning the supply squeeze could cost as much as two and a half billion dollars this year while German car makers consider building up stockpiles.
0: And it's a strong rise on its debut for Kwai Shao in Hong Kong. These are the shares of the Chinese short video company that has almost uh, tripled on its first day of trade in the territory.
1: So we have fourth quarter figures. Good morning to you all, by the way. Sorry, good morning, Karen. Good morning. Uh, and good morning to Jeff, but I'm not going to bring him into conversation just yet because I'm breaking BNP Paribas fourth quarter revenue figures. Um, 10.83 billion euros is the revenue figure versus 11.33 one year ago. Net income attributable to equity holders, 1.59 billion compared with 1.85 billion a year ago. The group says it expects cost of risk in 2021 to be lower than in 2020. Um, Common equity tier one ratio, i.e. how much capital have they got in the bank, up 70 basis points to 12.8% as of the 31st, from the 31st December. So a strengthened capital position there on common equity tier one. They expect a gradual rebound in economic activity expected from the second half of the year. Well, our very own Charlotte spoke to BNP Paribas CFO Lars
3: Machinel and asked for his take on the fourth quarter figures. The revenues are stable compared to the year before at 44 billion. Costs are down by 1.1 billion. So the gross operating income, the difference between the two, is up in a very material way. Then, of course, the year has been impacted by the pandemic. So the cost of risk has gone up by 2.5 billion. But what is important to know is that half of that increase is basically stemming from an anticipation of cost of risk to come. This is IFRS 9 to you, stage one and two, it's anticipation for risk to come. So if you look at the bottom line, yes, 7.1. It is better than what we have guided already back in May of of the year. So that's fine. And then if you look at our regulatory stance, the bank is very solid. We are a common equity T1 of 12.8%, where the target for 2020 was 12. So that's very good. And then when it comes to dividend, of course, the bank follows the recommendation by the ECB. And so that means that in May, we're going to pay 1.11 euros per share. But we have the intention once that would be lifted, so let's say post-September, to do the complement to get to our 50% of payout on 2020 results, as we always do. And we will see if it is share buyback or cash.
4: So you just mentioned an anticipation of uh, cost of uh, risk uh, to come and the ECB is said to be concerned about a potential wave of uh, loan defaults once uh, government relief uh, runs out. Is that the scenario scenario that you're preparing for?
3: If you look at, we have taken a scenario which is similar to the one that the ECB has. So that means there will be an improvement to come but we will not find the pre-COVID level before uh, uh, mid-2022 at the earliest and so basically that is the scenarios that we take into account in the forward-looking scenarios and so that we take into account and as I said of more than half of the increase in cost of risk is for these kind of anticipations.
4: Uh, let's look back at 2020 and, and the fourth quarter in particular and investment banking. Um, we've seen a boost of volatility uh, for the year that's been helping that part of the business do you see a continuation of this trend into 2021? How how sustainable is it?
3: Yeah, if you look at CIB, well, there's different parts of that. But if you look at, for example, the markets activity, if you look at FIC part, FIC has seen a pickup, a material pickup to record levels overall in the market. At the same time, what we saw is that several banks retracted temporarily or or, or for a longer time, and we basically being the bank that we are the solid bank with all the systems we've been able to step up our market share in those activities so if we look for fixed income into next year the volumes will probably taper off to normal levels however our market share gains should stay and if we if we look then at the equities part the equities part which was impacted in europe in the market at the beginning of the year given some changes in regulation so there was Kind of a negative contribution, which recuperated to the normal run rate at the year end. So, if we roll that into 2021, we would have a base effect going forward. And secondly, in the this year, we will end the translation of the uh, prime brokerage services from Deutsche Bank into BNP Paribas. That should be finalized this year as well. So that's the trends that we see in CIB.
1: So, Charlotte, where does this one sit in the pack of French and broader European banking as well? Lars Machinell, I think, was very candid there. There are challenges ahead, but it didn't seem despondent about the situation they're in.
4: No, look, they had, uh, for the, the last year, Q1 was particularly tough because, of course, the pandemic effect and also the specificity of French banks uh, being particularly strong on structured products that were connected to dividend payments, <clears throat> excuse me, that were cancelled at the beginning of the year. So they had a big hit uh, in Q1. But in Q2 and Q3, BNP Paribas did uh, quite well and they recovered uh, quite well, better than some of their peers uh, in France and a bit expectations. In this quarter, look, um, they are basically, they did a little bit better than, than expected. In terms of fully profit of 7.1 billion euros, so that's down 13.5%. They had given a guidance last year of food, fully like profit being down, break down break between 10, 15 yeah. and 20%. So here, that's, uh, they did a little bit better than expected. For Q4, profit was down 13.9%, but it was better than what the forecast had looked at. Um, so again, they mentioned that they had positive Jaws effect that had cost down by 1.1 billion euros. Again, they had given a guidance of something around 1 a billion. So again, looking at CIB, that's what we've seen in other European banks and what they really had to boost from uh, in the past year. And that's really the only part of the business that was up in the fourth quarter out of the three parts of the business. That's the one that was uh, positive while retail banking and international financial services were both down in revenue, uh, both of them. But CIB was up 7% in the fourth quarter. FIC within this was up 22%. But equities were still down on this quarter uh, uh, by a certain number. So it was the cost of risk there They mentioned they added some provisions uh, for, uh, for this quarter. So up 65% at 1.6 billion euros. So we talked about the lookout for 2021. And I asked Lars Macheneer whether he was concerned that the recovery maybe may be slower than expected when we see some uh, talks about potentially third lockdown downs in France and other main markets where they operate, and also the slow rollout of the vaccine in Europe and whether it was impacted, how quick the recovery could be in 2021. Take a listen.
3: When we look at the year 2021, what we have assumed is that there will be a gradual pickup. So before the summer, there can still be a bit of ups and downs depending on the variations and the types of lockdowns that we do and it is only after the summer where we assume that the effects of the vaccination will will kick in and there will be a pickup. so if you look at it overall uh, this is a bit the picture that we have and that is a picture that we have taken into account but if we look at that in a synthesis for us um, there is going to be we anticipate if we look at it and we look at all the you know all the experts that look forward into europe the way we are positioned we anticipate that there will be an acceleration of growth, that we will participate in that and therefore, basically, our revenues will taper up in 2021
4: there's so still some ups and downs in the first half of the year but they see a gradual recovery for 2021 they didn't give a specific number for guidance for next year but they hope they see that uh, revenue will be higher next year and that the cost of risk will be lower now they mentioned that the CET1 ratio was at 12.8% and also remember Ben Paribas has been one of the most vocal banks for the return of dividend payments so now after the ECB mentioned in December uh, some limited payouts would be allowed they announced that they will make um, uh, they will propose a 1.11 euros per share dividend in cash in May. So that's 21% of the 2020 profit. And there will be an additional restitution of 29% of the 2020 net income at the end of September if the ECB allows it. And this will take in the form of share buybacks or distribution of reserves. So here, BNP Paribas announcing uh, this dividend for the year, again, saying 2021, a little bit uncertain, but they do expect a gradual recovery for the second part of the year Karen.
2: Thank you very much for that, Charlotte. Uh, Take a quick look at Carlsberg's four-year numbers that have crossed. It's a bit of a mixed bag, a slight miss on the the fourth quarter revenue number and the overall uh, four-year revenue print as well. But uh, the company also uh, increasing its dividend by 5%, although that said, the market was looking for a little bit more. The the board deciding to uh, pay out 22 per share Danish krona, but the market was looking for roughly 22.88. So slightly under on that dividend payout, even though it is an increase as well. I think what you're seeing on the, the four-year organic revenue, uh, organic volumes minus 3.8%. You also had uh, the operating profit at minus 3.1%, reported at seven, minus 7.3%. These numbers tell a story of how challenging it has been to get through this pandemic, particularly across some markets in Asia. But that said, they're seeing glimmers of hope. And I think that 3 to 10% jump in operating profit growth and now anticipating for 2021 suggests a turnaround. They continue to flag up some of the uncertainty that they've witnessed. But I think what you are now seeing sort of rear view mirror a little bit from this fourth quarter, just to give you a sense of what the line was at 1245 uh, billion uh, Danish krona versus the 13.13 that the market had anticipated. That gives you a sort of extent of the size of the miss. Uh, just a couple lines too on the trends. Uh, we know that there's been a huge change in innovation around the uh, consumer patterns alcohol-free brews were positively impacted by an acceleration in consumer awareness of health and well-being as the (laughs) pandemic uh, took hold. So you you were seeing people considering more about what they consume, and I know Steve, you're one of those people, so (laughs) that was a nice time on
3: Friday.
1: You know I haven't had a drink this year. i kind of carried on with uh, dry January, but I can't see the point of drinking at the moment. But I'm actually more interested in why this share trades at such a big discount to Heineken, actually. I thought, you know, if we're looking for trading pairs and looking for ideas for our viewers out there as well. Carlsberg trades at 20.7 times forward, whereas Heineken trades at 26.5 times forward. Now, this may be down to the geographic mix. It may be down to their exposure, as you say, to... Oh, what is it? Low carb, low alcohol, blah, 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 alternatives. As I said to, I think, once to one of the CEOs of this business, what's the point of drinking if it's got everything taken out of it? But um, but that's another issue. Um, but I think it also, and I don't know if Jeff's got a view on the, on the brewers as well, but I think it actually comes down to the share ownership in this case as well. And there's nothing that Carlsberg can do about it. Their top shareholder is the Carlsberg Foundation, which owns around about 10% of the stock, whereas Heineken, Uh, as our viewers I think probably know by now, is pretty much dominated by the Heineken family, which owns 50.01. So whilst the two are very comparable in terms of their geographic reach in many cases, well, the fact that Heineken has such a tightly owned share structure with the family owning over 50 percent perhaps means, like Hermes, and we've talked about that a lot of time as well, perhaps means that it trades at a significant um, um, premium because of that. Jeff, I don't know if you've got any views on the Brewers.
0: Yeah, just, just very briefly. I mean, I think it's like, um, looking through the thick end of a pint glass, isn't it? That, um, actually the view that you're getting is somewhat obscured by the bottom of the glass or the fact that you may have drunk too many while you've been sat in the bar. And, and that's the issue for me with this sector in particular. And I think it applies to all of them. I mean, I, I take on board what you're saying about the difference in the performance between these two brewers. But ultimately, these brewers sit in a basket of shares that we could describe as being partly impacted by the pandemic, partly not. And I think it's the partly impacted by the pandemic bit that perhaps should give our audience pause for thought as they contemplate whether they want to re-enter positions in this particular segment. Because as we know, the in-home alcohol consumption in the Western world has been relatively strong throughout the pandemic, as people have been looking to find ways perhaps to ease their pain. Uh, But the out of home consumption has fallen flat because of the lockdown so i think um if you're bold maybe you take a position in anticipation of a strong recovery here and the fact that companies like uh uh, uh, uh Carlsberg are now very keen to go out and spend money to advertise their new uh, non-alcohol uh, lagers the other thing you could do is actually just wait and see how long it takes for us to get to the other end of the vaccination programmes and the bars opening and the pubs opening and the restaurants opening and all those opportunities to re-emerge for people to drink alcohol or non-alcohol drinks out of home. Um, That would just be my thought.
2: thought on it.
0: So let us um, let me pick up here uh, and talk a little bit about the non-farm payrolls, because obviously that's going to be the big story for us today on the macro picture. The US economy is forecast to have added 50,000 jobs in January, bouncing back from December's loss of 140,000. The unemployment rate is expected to hold steady at 6.7%, while growth in average hourly earnings is seen slowing to 0.3%. It'll be the first set of uh, non-farm payroll figures under President Biden and comes with Democrats and Republicans at loggerheads over the stimulus. Well, if we look at the initial jobless claims numbers uh, for the US, they came in at their lowest in two months at 779,000. That marks a decline now of 33,000 from the week before. Meanwhile, continuing claims also fell down to uh, 4.6 million from almost 4.8 million the week before and a peak of around 25 million last May here. And I'll just uh, make the point as a throwback to you, Karen... I'm just not that sure that this number, again, will be very relevant to the risk on trade as we obviously come to the end of the week here. We've got the S&P printing another record high and you just get the sense that the market is buying into this idea that we actually saw peak COVID infections in the US at 300,000 on that single day back in January and actually we're going to start to see those numbers decline here. So you do get a sense... Uh, from the market that there is a bit more positivity now around the prospect of this reopening reflation trade. And I just don't know whether the jobs number will matter in that context. Even as we know, there are at least 10 million less jobs in the United States than there were back in, uh, what, February of uh, 2020.
2: I do agree with you that the risk appetite has been driven a lot by that US picture around vaccines, uh, particularly that story about the uh, inoculations being sent out to retail pharmacies to speed up the process. That was real positive, and you've seen it in quarters of the market, not just equities this week, but also on the dollar trade as well. But where the payrolls comes into the equation is on those sort of days where you see a little bit of waxing and waning in attitudes, and perhaps we will see that as we trade around record highs that we got to again on the S&P and NASDAQ as investors look for excuses to lighten up or we'll be a little bit cautious. And don't forget, every time you get good news, it puts a little bit of a hurdle higher for the lawmakers to come up with fresh stimulus. So when you think about some of this risk appetite, it has come back into the market this week on hopes that the Democrats will agree another sizable package to help out with this economic recovery story. So good news on a payrolls report, maybe bad news for hopes around stimulus and vice versa today. So I would look out for that theme and also as we trade into next week. But uh, we did get those records on the S&P and also on the NASDAQ. Uh, very strong uh, trading patterns here and don't forget we've had a lot of earnings out from the tech sector that's been a supportive factor for the Nasdaq as well but it was Apple having the most positive impact on uh, some of the major indices in trade yesterday for the Dow it was Visa one of the big moving stocks let's just take a quick look at what that we've had over the course of the trading week it's not been a bad one as we talk about risk appetite and this is how it played out 3.5 odd percent pop on the Dow that's a bit of that recovery trade that we're talking about around vaccines and economic revival story some of this around what we saw on the tech earnings at this end of the boards. Alphabet, one of the strong drivers this week, and uh, 5.4% pop. Outpacing uh, was what you saw on the NASDAQ versus the Dow. One of the other big features started just to wax and wane a little bit over the course of this trading week, and that was around this retail frenzy. Let's take a look at what GameStop did in a week where you had broad-based gains across the major markets. Huge decline. 83-odd percent down over the course of the week. So after being one of the huge traded stocks by the army of retail investors using their social media accounts to try and coordinate these trades, we saw that trade deflated over the course of the week. That said, in context, the stock is still up 184% so far this year. So some people are still possibly sitting on some gains. You've had increased focus too from authorities this week and Janet Yellen was one that picked up the challenge yesterday was talking about it with a number across the financial regulation community and uh, got to the point that uh, they do not think that there is a real challenge at this point, but they are trying to concern, well, look at some of the concerns out there, some of the complaints have been made about the way this manipulation had an impact on markets across hedge funds, for retail investors, the way that the money was managed by some of the online trading platforms. So it feels as though there is some work taking place behind the scenes. And uh, that's just an extraordinary move over one week. I want to take you to the small cap space because... It was quite stunning as some of that volatility was playing out on GameStop and a handful of other stocks, we did see a little bit of volatility in the small-cap space. And that's typically the link you take a look at in the, the smaller-named stocks on the market. When that volatility escalates, they can typically suffer. But as some of that volatility settled down, we witnessed it on the fear gauge this week, The Russell was back in action at a record closing session yesterday. And uh, the 2% pop, uh, adding to a gain of uh, about 6.2% over the course of the trading week so far, Let's push on to the yield market. We are widening out on spreads. The stimulus story, the hopes that Democrats will come up with this package has meant we've risen to about a three-week high in the, the 10-year yields. Uh, we've uh, travelled, as you can see, 1.13 at this uh, point. We we're at 1.16 in trade yesterday. The yield's widening out between the short and the long end. You can see it in the, the 5 and the 30s. This is the widest spread we've had since about 2015. So that steepening yield curve certainly feature these markets. The yield also are lifting the dollar. Take Take a look at this, and this has been fascinating to watch. The dollar has become somewhat of an all-weather currency, even though we've got risk on, typically, that would funnel money into other risk currencies away from the dollar. Dollar's been bid up this week, uh, suggesting that it's uh, picking up traction on the other side of the coin, not just as a defensive, but as a a risk trade as well. And I think investors are very much looking at the inoculation programme and they're playing that through the foreign exchange window. So dollar's been supported this week, sterling's been supported and the Israeli currency's also been one of the big trades this week. No
1: big surprise about the Israelis, I guess, given their stunning success. I think they're nearly at 40% now, aren't they, in terms of their back. Fantastic performance by... um Tel Aviv and and the Israel community more generally. Look, um, uh, there's lots of things one could say, loads of angles. I'll just have one angle. Here you go. As markets go up, do they become inherently more risky or less risky? And I would say to you, if valuations are being stretched, because that is a big if, because you can grow into valuations, but let's just say they're getting slightly more risky as you get to higher levels. I think that's fair to say, that if you have a higher valuation, there is greater risk to the downside. That's not the most... Um, jaw-dropping statement I've ever made. So why in that case is, and you mentioned it with the VIX as well, why is the VIX trading down 34% week to date, stroke month to date, which is obviously only a few days old as well? If stocks are getting riskier and the market is getting riskier as we go up, why is nobody taking out an insurance policy? And it's not just the VIX as well. Gold, which traded as high as, and I have a price here for you, 2067, I think it was, in early August, is now trading uh, 1795, the exact print there as well. Nobody seems to be taking out any form of insurance as the market goes up. I think that's just typical, Jeffrey.
0: Yeah, I think it's very interesting, isn't it? Because that's a, a reflection of the fact that there is a mounting euphoria about the upside here the problem as you know and as we have sat round the desk and talked about ad nauseum, really not only now but back in 2000 back in 2008 back in 1997 is that it's an incredibly brave investor who tries to call a top and trade a top and you feel like such a mug if you walk away from a market that is about to experience one of those accelerating periods, perhaps just towards the end of a bull run, where you see the market climb very aggressive, go parabolic, and you can make a lot of um, gain, albeit fast gain, quickly, if you are uh, prepared to just sit in and grit your teeth and acknowledge that maybe some of the valuations do look a little bit hairy but ultimately until the market begins to uh, deteriorate significantly you have a good chance of making a lot of money at this point. And I think you know, I hate to keep repeating this line about um, liquidity vs the vaccines, but that's where we still are, aren't we? And I looked at the political process in the US overnight and we still have the Democrats hammering away uh, for this 1.9 trillion, albeit now with the Senate votes suggesting that maybe there'll be some limit on who can actually get it and that high earners may be excluded. But another 1.9 trillion um, sprayed into the U.S. economy is going to provide some sustenance for those who want to believe these markets can continue to climb.
2: I was just gonna weigh in what we've seen on the, the European markets as we talk about uh, the, the US markets and Wall Street, the sort of trade we witnessed this week. Worth keeping in mind that some of the European markets have tried to keep pace. And I think it's quite pivotal because we're, we're talking to investors saying, we'll see a rotation out of the US markets into Europe. I think some of us have seen in the past that that doesn't happen. Typically, if Wall Street is not gaining, then Europe is not gaining either. But during this week, you saw everything really move in lockstep higher. The DAX, uh, for instance, even outpacing the Dow, you saw gains on that German stock market of more than a 4.6%, so very strong trading week as all boats were floated. I would just say though, one of the, the curious things is that the FTSE hasn't quite kept up with the same pace, only 1.5% over the week. And I was just saying that investors are playing the vaccine story that, you know, you've got the accelerated vaccines in three jurisdictions around the world, the United States, Israel, and here in the UK, but it's not been reflected in UK stocks. And so maybe that's, that's yeah. the, the makeup of the basket, but it is being left behind. A
1: I will just add one tiny thing to that. The, one of the biggest sectors in the FTSE 100 is the oil sector, mm-hmm. and I think the market, although perhaps you should have expected it, was a little bit disappointed with BP and Shell this week, which are two of the largest components in the FTSE. Uh, both had big declines year-on-year year in numbers, obviously because of the oil price and what have you and the transition they're trying to do it as well at the moment. But the fact of the matter is, when they're going down, the FTSE finds it very difficult to make much momentum to the upside. The other thing I'd say is the oil price has gone through the roof this week at the same time when those oil majors have been under pressure. Again, I talked about this earlier weeks. week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but it's very interesting to see oil majors going down, or at least not going up, and the oil price going up exaggeratedly. And I'll just tell you the fact that WTI, week to date so far, is up 7.7%. Mr. Cutmore.
0: Yeah, and I'm a bit troubled as well by the BNP numbers. I I know what um, Charlotte said there. But as we continue to look for reasons for Europe to participate in the upside here, it does trouble me a little bit that at this point in the European Covid cycle, BNP is only now giving us more news about the cost of risk rising and further provisioning for bad debts. Of course, the the story elsewhere has moved on. The banks are talking about writing back the provisions that they made last year so I'm a bit confused as to why we're getting that story at the moment in uh, France when in the United States and in the UK banks and even I think Santander were telling us that actually impairment loans have been better behaved than expected which gives them an op- opportunity to write back some of the provisioning they did. That's not the message we got from BNP. Uh, BMP.